Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 30th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I'm going to present The Jews in Europe, The Mask of Freemasonry, Part 1, based on Maurice Pinier, who I don't think really exists, but the book is printed in his name, Maurice Pinier's The Plot Against the Church. Every time I um, think that I'm ready to start the presentation for the Protocols of Satan and, and address the Protocols themselves, I realize that there's just more information that I want to supply at the beginning before I commence on that project because there's so much that, that has to be put together. In, in my mind, in order to present an understanding that the protocols of the so-called learned elders of Zion really are an authentic work of the Jews, and I am absolutely convinced they are. I started the series on the protocols of Satan and did seven perhaps hour and 15 to hour and 30 minute segments just on preliminary information mostly related to the controversy surrounding the veracity of the protocols themselves and all of the press and all of the refutations of the Jews that came into being in the early 20th century when the protocols were first published and the Jews were attempting to deny them. So we spent seven segments with the likes of Nesta Webster and other sources establishing that the information in the Protocols of Zion was the same as the information which was circulating around through the writings of the secret societies and the Marxist communists in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Some of the denizens of the Christogenian chat server, have, where we have conversations several times a week, have already scolded me for procrastinating and forestalling the planned continued presentation of the protocols of Satan. However, I found it necessary to do so because in the first seven segments of the series, we went to great lengths to demonstrate that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion were indeed what they are believed to be by many of the so-called conspiracy theorists. They are a boastful outline of the plans of Jewry for the final subjugation and control over the nations of Christendom. Doing this, we showed, largely from the work of Nesta Webster, that many of the statements in the Protocols had been expressed throughout the literature of both members and founders of the various secret societies of 18th and 19th century Europe, as well as that of the early leaders of the Marxists and Communists, especially the writings of Lenin. Doing all of this, we presented the thesis that the Jews were indeed behind the Protocols of Zion as it is claimed, and that the secret societies were the primary vehicle 
through which the Jews had been able to execute the plan for world conquest, which the protocols represent. However, before proceeding with a presentation of the protocols themselves, we determined that it was necessary to provide some of the glue which is necessary in order to secure that thesis. So we presented the chapter on the Spanish Inquisition from E. Michael Jones's book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History. And we did that in part to show that the mentality of the Jews of Europe in the 15th century was exactly similar to the mentality of the Jews as it is exhibited in the Protocols of Zion. Then we presented the we presented anew the Reuschland affair from E. Michael Jones's perspective. With sufficient of our own comments, we had presented the Reuschland affair in the past from the perspective of the 19th century. German historian Johann Janssen, but we presented it from Jones's perspective first in order to better elucidate the Jewish influence behind the humanist factions of the Reformation, and then to show that the naive German fascination with the Kabbalah of the sort exhibited by Reuschland the so-called second greatest scholar in Europe in his time, was the opportunity which the Jews took advantage of to lure men into their secret societies. I'm not saying that began with Reuschland. I'm saying that the same naive German fascination which Reuschland had was taken advantage of by the Jews later. This same phenomenon seems to have spread through England, as E. Michael Jones had also mentioned, through another man, John Dee, a mystic, an astrologer, a mathematician, and an alchemist. He was basically a polymath, who was a member of the court of Queen Elizabeth I of England, who was his largest patron. We hope to discuss Dee at greater length sometime in the future. And we'll probably have to consider another member of that court as well, Francis Bacon, at least in brief. It may be evident that John Dee was to England what Reuschland had been for Germany, a vehicle for the introduction of the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism into English intellectual circles. Then, we hope to discuss the Jew Manasseh ben Israel his influence upon the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell, and the presence of Spanish Jews in England before Cromwell, when they weren't supposed to be there, where they had been posing as Spanish merchants. It seems that the Jews were lurking around every corner of the Reformation, looking for ways to corrupt the breakaway churches and to exploit the newly found intellectual freedoms granted to Christians escaping the papal tyranny. I do not know how, how long we will delay our presentation of the protocols for all of that. Probably not for long, 
because these topics can be belabored, belabored for many months, we will try to squeeze a presentation of John D. and Vanessa Ben Israel into a very short space. I, I can say that. I can promise that. I can't promise much more than that. We are not Roman Catholic apologists, as is E. Michael Jones. But we must come to grips with the fact that although the medieval papacy was tyrannical in many ways, not all Catholics are wicked. Man is a prisoner of the paradigm in which he is raised, around which he formulates his opinions, his convictions, and his perceptions of right and wrong. There are many popes and cardinals which we should suspect, no doubt, but there were just as many who acted with beneficence. Even if they were vehicles of the church, they acted with good intentions, believing that they were acting as pious Christians because Roman Catholicism was the only Christianity that they knew. I first became acquainted, and it was only an acquaintance, with the book The Plot Against the Church which was first published in 1962 in Italian under the name of Maurice Pignet, perhaps 18 years ago in prison, when a friend sent me a facsimile of a chapter describing the Moorish invasion of Spain as the work of the Jews. That was when I first began to learn of the intimate connections between the Jews and Islam, and ultimately Muhammad himself of whom I have since become convinced, was really the Jewish prophet to the bastard races. That's how to describe Muhammad. He was the Jewish prophet to the bastard races. Not that the Jews aren't bastards themselves, but they consider themselves special and separate from the other bastards. They did that, I'm convinced so that they could mobilize the bastards against Christendom. And they did. At that time, in the 7th century, the Jews were not yet able to subvert Christendom to an extent which satisfied them, so they sought pawns to attack it directly. The Islamic so-called religion was one vehicle they created which would do that. But of course, all of this was was foreseen by the God of the Christians, and described in Daniel chapter 8. Oh, that's also a Christian book. But the book was evidently a response, the book, I'm sorry, but the plot against the church when it was written was evidently a response to Vatican II, and was written by a group of Roman Catholic clergymen said to be high-ranking in the church as a revelation of the forces that were behind Vatican II, which they rather correctly saw as destructive to the church itself. Not that the Catholic Church hadn't been battered anyway over the... Around that same time, in 1998, I read another book titled The New World Order by A. Ralph Epperson. It was actually the second book I had read by that author. The first book, The Unseen Hand, I thought was excellent. 
not because it described the Jewish question. It certainly did not. But A. Ralph Epperson's The Unseen Hand was excellent because it serves as a wonderful introduction to the conspiratorial view of history, the idea that there are powers lurking in the shadows that have, are truly responsible for the major calamities and events of history, the wars, the depressions, things like that. Epperson's book was great for that. But when I read The New World Order, I saw that Epperson blamed the entire globalist and world communist conspiracy on the Freemasons, and he stopped there. I am certain many people could be allured by that idea with a basic knowledge of the history of Freemasonry. However, Epperson, with all of what I thought were his good intentions, never connected the evils of Freemasonry to the real devil behind the scenes, which is the Jew. In fact, Epperson made the huge blunder of accepting the disinformation of Manly Hall and the continual assertions that the Jews worshipped the same God as Yahweh, who was the God of the Christians. Citing Hall, he understood that Freemasonry ultimately worshipped a different God, but did not understand that the, that God was actually the Jews themselves, who really have no other God, while they fool Christians into believing that they are the people of the Christian God. What webs of confusion the devil has spun, most people today accepted. But I must aver, before we get into a session bashing Freemasons, I must aver that not all Freemasons are equal, and people that criticize Freemasons and see the conspiracy behind Freemasonry usually gloss over this, but it's of utmost importance. I cannot be persuaded that all Freemasons are evil, or that most Freemasons are even aware of the conspiracy behind Freemasonry which has manipulated all Freemasons in one way or another. This is the advantage of a secret society, which is compartmentalized into many factions and organized into many different levels of knowledge and disclosure. It's true, nature can be concealed to the majority of its initiates, and the initiates are enticed into going along simply because they want to move up the ladder. Those factions, which do not go along so readily, can easily be isolated without suspicion. For example, Benjamin Franklin was the revolutionary American ambassador to France, where he resided in that capacity from 1776 to 1785. During those years in France, he was a member and, for over two years, Grand Master of the Freemasonic New Sirs Lodge, or Nine Sisters Lodge. Several years ago, studying the papers of Franklin at great length, it was evident that he seemed 
sincerely oblivious to the many supposed grievances and causes of the French Revolution of 1789, which was indeed launched by the associated Grand Orient Lodge of Freemasonry. Most of Franklin's recorded recollections related to the Nine Sisters Lodge, to his time in French Freemasonry, were connected to his scientific interests as the Lodge, where Voltaire was also a notable member, was connected to the French Royal Academy of Sciences. Remember, as we learned from Reuchlin, science, and from E. Michael Jones, who made a correct assessment, the beginnings of science and the idea, at least in the minds of some men, of magic, and scientific inquiry began around the same time that these men began investigating the magic of the Kabbalah. So why wouldn't the Freemason lodges, the lodges of Freemasonry, be invested in the Academy of Sciences? The Nine Sisters Lodge that Franklin was a longtime member of was heavily connected to the French Royal Academy of Sciences. And Franklin was there from 1776 to 1785. But Franklin had been, had been honored by the British counterpart, the Royal Academy, which is the British Academy of Sciences, in the 1750s for his work with electricity. It was his legitimate interest in the sciences, and not any nefarious purpose which led him to Freemasonry in France. All of his papers reflect that. None of his papers that I've ever seen, and I've read quite a few of them, there are many of his papers are available online at the University of Pennsylvania Archives on the internet, and I can find no indication that Franklin knew of any Masonic conspiracy, the, the coming French Revolution, or even had a care for any of those things. Idealists in pursuit of liberty, intellectuals in pursuit of academic freedom, many men enlisting themselves with the Freemasons, thought the freedom of conscience and intellectual liberty, which was advocated by Freemasonry. That is certainly true of at least most of the American founders who were both Protestant Christians and Freemasons. But there was a worm in the apple, and that is what we are going to examine this evening. However, we must admit that seeing the alternative in the oppression, and as Erasmus and others termed it, the obscurantism of the Roman Catholic Church, was still fresh in the minds of those who escaped it in post-Reformation Europe. The blood on the fields of the Church's Thirty Years' War against the German people barely being dried when the first shots of the American Revolution were heard, many of the outward ideals of the Freemasons would appeal to us as well, just as they appealed to the American founders. Without the knowledge of the devils lurking in the shadows, many identity Christians today would also 
have been Freemasons a few short centuries ago. With this balanced perspective in mind, we will present part two of The Plot Against the Church by Maurice Pinier, presumably. And this part is titled, The Power Concealed Behind Freemasonry. The first chapter only quantifies the papal recognition of the threat that Freemasonry posted, I'm sorry, posed to Christendom, which was being acknowledged from the early 18th century, from as early as 1738 in these sources here. Chapter 1, Freemasonry as Enemy of the Church and of Christianity. In view of the fact that the theme of this second book, of course we're omitting part one for our purposes, we only want the information relevant to connect Freemasonry to the Jews and the Kabbalah to substantiate what E. Michael Jones had said at the end of his chapter on the Reuschling controversy. In view of the fact that the theme of this second book has been dealt with in such a masterly way and with such depth by outstanding and exactly instructed personages like, and, and I hate these Catholic titles, His Holiness, Pope Leo XIII, the high dignified Cardinal Jose Maria Caro Rodriguez, Archbishop of Santiago de Chile, Monsignor Leon Murin, Archbishop, Bishop of Port St. Louis, I'm sorry, Port Louis, and various other illustrious church and secular writers. We can restrict ourselves to writing down literally such authorized excerpts without in the least enfeebling their great regard. And our author, or authors actually, go on to list a whole slew of the encyclicals which the popes in Rome had issued against Freemasonry. And he says, Leo XIII, I'm going to try to omit some of the crazy Catholic titles just because I despise them. Leo XIII says in his encyclical, Humanum Genus, issued in 1884, exactly as follows. The popes, our forefathers, and of course we also despise the Catholic, the Catholic abuse, I should say, of a strictly genetic label, who bore conscientious concern for the spiritual salvation of the Christian peoples, soon knew very well who this deadly enemy was and what he wished even if he hardly ever came out of the darkness of his secret conspiracy into the light. And accordingly, when he had spread his word of revolution, they exhorted princes and peoples to caution that they might not allow themselves to be caught by the malicious arts and traps which were prepared to deceive them. The first announcement, and I'm going to truncate some of these long titles, the first announcement of the danger was given in the year 1738 by Pope Clement XII on April 24th, which order Benedict XIV confirmed and renewed 
on May 18, 1751. Pius VII on September 13, 1821, followed the path of both. And Leo XII, who in the Apostolic Constitution incorporated in this material the decrees passed by his predecessors, authorized and confirmed the same forever on the 13th of March, 1825. Pius VIII, in his Traditio Humiliati, on May 24, 1829, confirmed the same. Gregory XVI, in Merari Vas, in 1832, confirmed the same. And Pius IX, on November 9, 1860, and on September 25, 1865, confirmed the same, naturally spoke repeatedly in the same sense. All of these papal encyclicals, and most of them, we have linked in the notes we will publish with this presentation, are found at the website which libraries papal encyclicals. All of these condemn the Freemasonic conspiracy from 1738 up until the end of the 1800s, rather consistently. Here we must note that the Masons themselves seem to be proud of the papal pronouncements made against them. And maybe someday we'll discuss the anti-Mason party in the United States in the early 1800s. Around the time that most of these papal encyclicals were published, and the anti-Mason party in the United States was not a Catholic party. It was made up mostly of Yankee Protestants, what I understand. The Masons themselves seem to be proud of the papal pronouncements made against them. We found a website, which we will also link with this article, from the Grand Lodge of British Columbia, Canada. They have an internet page which catalogs and reproduces many of these exact pronouncements listed here in the plot against the church. Leo, Leo XIII, continues to be quoted by our authors. According to the example of our predecessors, we have now resolved to openly turn ourselves against the Freemasonic Society, against the system of their doctrine, against their manner of feeling and acting, to make to evermore make clear their harmful power, now this is in 1884, and thus to prevent infection by such a destructive plague. But these encyclicals began to be issued by popes in 1708. Leo continues, The good tree can bring forth no bad fruits, interpreting Matthew chapter 7 verse 18 for us. Nor can the bad tree bring forth good fruits, and the fruits of the Freemasonry sects are harmful, and in addition, very sour. For from the completely reliable proofs that we have mentioned previously, 
is revealed the ultimate and last and most principle of their intelligence, namely, to destroy to their foundations every religious and civic order that has been erected by Christianity, and after their own manner to erect a new order with foundations and laws, which they took from the essence of naturalism, the very thing that the Jews constantly push today. The confusing errors which we have enumerated must already suffice in themselves to fill the states with anxiety and fear. For if the fear of God and respect for laws is abolished, if the authority of the princes is despised, if the madness of revolution is called good and is declared as lawful, and Europe in 1884 had already seen a host of revolutions since the French Revolution, if the greatest unbridledness, if with the greatest unbridledness the passions of the peoples are unchained, without other hindrance than punishment, then universal upheaval and disorder must necessarily follow. And it is particularly this upheaval and disorder that is planned and put forward by many associations of communists and socialists of whose plans it cannot be said that they are remote from the sect of the Freemasons, since they favor the latter's intentions in great measure and agree with them on the most fundamental principles. And it should be obvious that even though identity Christians to understand and adhere to the word of God despise much of what the Roman Catholic Church stands for, the Roman Catholic Church despised many of the same things we despised at certain times the 19th century. This was in 1884, and today with 2020 hindsight, we can see the connections to the international Jews as well as the boastful plans outlined in the protocols that Leo XIII was attributing to the Freemasons of the 19th century. The valid conclusion is that the Jews are also behind Freemasonry, and we will see that further on. And as Leo continues, says, however, this may be, worthy brothers, as far as concerns us in the face of such a heavy and already widespread evil, we must be diligent with our entire soul in seeking for aid, and since we know that the best and foremost hope of aid is placed in the power of the divine religion, which is hated by the Freemasons in the same way as it is feared. We hold it to be essential that we stand in service of this healing power against the common enemy. Everything, accordingly, that all the popes, our predecessors, have ordered to hold up the attempts and efforts of the Freemasonic sects which we see has gone back 146 years before Leo XIII's time. Everything which they praise to keep men away from such societies or entice them from them, we strengthen and confirm individually and entirely with our papal authority. As one sees, both His Holiness, Leo XIII, as well as various earlier popes are very clear in their condemnation of Freemasonry and recognize simultaneously the latter's intention. 
in association with socialists and communists to destroy Christianity? And who directs Freemasonry? As we wish to explain in the following chapters, it is the same who directs socialism and communism, the Jews. And this book was written in the early 1960s as a response to Vatican II by certain notable cleric, Catholic clerics, most of whom were in the College of Cardinals. These are the men that voted for popes. These are the men that had the most influence within the Roman Catholic Church. And at least a good handful of them were finally under the Jews in the 1960s. But with Vatican II and its success, it did do the Catholic Church a bit of good. And today we see that we have popes that embrace Jews. Um, I, I don't know, but ha have necking matches with rabbis and, and have no qualms with Freemasonry. At the end of our presentation of the Reuschland Affair, from the perspective of E. Michael Jones, we had seen Jones adeptly connect modern Freemasonry to the medieval Jews through its basis in the Kabbalah as admitted by Albert Pike. Here we have the same assertion from the Roman Catholic perspective in chapter 2. The Jews, chapter 2 of book 2 of the Plot Against the Church, titled The Jews as Founders of Freemasonry. Now, I've always been at odds with this, with this myself, because I don't think it's clear that the Jews founded the concept of Freemasonry, which may have come from the medieval guilds, but the Jews certainly did pilfer it. They pilfered it and they stole it for their own use. There's no doubt about that. The contention doesn't even matter. Freemasonry has been clearly a vehicle of the Jews for nearly 300 years now. To unmask Freemasonry, said Leo XIII, means to conquer it. When we lift its mask and notice his altruism and his positive perspective here, when we lift its mask, then every honest mind and every Christian heart will turn away from it with revulsion. And through this fact alone, it will fall, completely destroyed and detested, particularly by those who obey it. The learned scholar and Jesuit, Monsignor Leon Murin, Archbishop and Bishop of Port Louis, shows us in his so very richly authenticated work entitled Clarification of Freemasonry, with crushing authority, that the Jews are the founders, organizers, and leaders of Freemasonry, which they use to attain world domination in order to destroy the Holy Catholic Church and the remaining existing religions. Among the attested literature that he presents in this connection appear several quotations which we mention in the following, meaning in the paragraphs which follow. And here in the words of Louis XIII, 
we have two revelations. First, it becomes apparent that the Jews did not have an organization over American Freemasonry until at least 1801, as we shall see. Although we would not deny at least some Jewish influence before that time. Secondly, we see that even Leo XIII admits as fact that at least many Freemasons were unaware of the overall objectives of Freemasonry, which he hoped to reveal to them here. That's where he said that when we lift its mask, then every honest mind and every Christian heart will turn away from it with revulsion. Right there, he is telling us that he perceived that most Freemasons did not understand the overall objectives of Freemasonry because of its many levels of disclosure, because of the way Masonry is compartmentalized into its many ranks and its many lodges. That's why I said at the beginning of this program that those who don't go along are easy to isolate within the Masonic structure. So being a Mason by itself does not make one a part of the conspiracy. It may make one a pawn in the continuation of the conspiracy, but it doesn't make one an active part of the conspiracy. Not at all. Leo XIII is also making the revelation with the hopes that faithful Christians would then abandon Freemasonry. And this is written in 1884. So, continuing with Leo, thank you, my remarks about Jewish influence before 1801. The Jews were thus the founders of the First Great Council, which was to transform itself into the middle point of world Freemasonry. And they placed it in America, in a city chosen exactly on the 33rd parallel, northern latitude. The successive head has lived in Charleston, meaning Charleston, South Carolina, which has actually always been the home of many Jews, probably at one time the majority of the Jews in the southern states were in Charleston since the 1700s. The successive head has lived in Charleston since 1801. In the year 1889, this was Albert Pike, whom we have already mentioned in his circular letter of the 14th of July, 1889, the famed anniversary and tercentenary. And that mention is, of course, in book one of this, of, of this plot against the church. So we have omitted it. He assumes, talking in reference to the pompous Albert Pike, he assumes the title of each of the 33 degrees and in addition adds the following, most mighty, this is what Pike called himself in his book, <clears throat> excuse me, most mighty and all highest commander, grand master of the Supreme Council of Charleston, first highest council of the globe, grand master 
and preserver of the holy palladium, all highest pontifex of world Freemasonry, the title Grandmaster and Preserver of the Holy Palladium, seems to be a shot at the popes who had dispensed, I believe they were called palliums, the vestment that the bishops wear to the various bishoprics. But the Palladium is actually an idol of ancient Greek paganism, which was supposedly passed from heaven. And it was supposedly an image, I believe, of Athena or one of their other gods. And the Palladiums were well guarded by the Greeks in their temples. They were mentioned as early as Homer, I believe. They're definitely mentioned in the tragic poets, 5th century BC. I believe they're mentioned by Homer, which would be at the end of the 7th century, by all rational calculation. Continuing with the assessment of Albert Pike by Leo. With these pompous titles, he published his circular letter in the one and thirtieth year of his pontificate, supported by ten high dignitaries, most enlightened and most sublime brothers, rulers, grand general inspectors, chosen magi, a word used by Reuschlin in, in, in reference to his study of the Kabbalah, who formed the most illustrious grand collegium of ancient Freemasons. The Council of the Chosen Troops and of the Holy Battalion of the Order. The letters the letter enumerates the twenty-three highest councils, which previously were directly created through that of Charleston, and are dispersed over the entire world. So these twenty-three highest councils, this entire organization, this world organization of Freemasonry could not have happened until after 1801, which is important to note in relation to American history and all the conspiracy theorists that talk about the evil intentions of the founders, something which simply is not true. There may have been, and I have a couple in mind, there may have been some founders with nefarious intentions, but most of the American founders, even though they shared all those humanist ideals that the humanists of Europe shared, were still good Christian men with good intention. The circular letter enumerates the 23 highest councils, which previously were directly created through that of Charleston and are dispersed over the entire world. Then it lists the hundred grand orients and grand lodges of all rights, which are connected with the highest council of Charleston, as the all-highest power of Freemasonry, the exclusive right of the Jews. For example, the Grand Orient of France, the Grand, I'm sorry, the General Council of the Right of Mitzrayim, the Grand Council of the Freemason Oddfellows, etc. From the proceeding, we must conclude that Freemasonry all over the world is one in countless forms, however, under the supreme direction of the all-highest 
Pontifex of Charleston, and then under the subtitle Jewish Origin, the rites and symbols of the Freemasons and of the other secret sects remind one constantly of the Kabbalah, secret Jewish mystique, and Jewry, the reconstruction of the Temple of Solomon, the Star of David, the Seal of Solomon, the names of the different degrees, as, for example, Knight Kadash. Kadash means in Hebrew, holy. It actually means separated, but holy is one translation. Prince of Jerusalem, Prince of Lebanon, Knight of the Serpent of Arain, etc. And does not the prayer of the English Freemasons, which was recorded in an assembly held in 1663, recall Judaism in a most clear manner? And there, the book is citing the International Review of Secret Societies, published in Paris in 1913 which was also a source employed by Nesta Webster. The um, press was not completely controlled by the Jews at this time. There were many publications, especially in France, which were aimed at exposing Freemasonry and its Jewish connections. Finally, the Scottish Freemasons made the use of the Jewish calendar. For example, a book which was written by the American Freemason Pike in the year 1881, referring to the famous Morals and Dogmas, is dated Anno Mundi, or Year of the World, 5641. At present, this calendar is retained only in the highest degrees, while the Freemasons in general add 4,000 years to the Christian calendar and not 3,760, like the Jews. The clever rabbi, Bena Moseg, writes the following. Those who wish to make the effort to examine the questions of relations between Jewry and philosophic Freemasonry, between theosophy and the secret doctrines in general, will lose a little of their arrogant despisal of the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. They will cease to smile contemptuously at the idea that the Kabbalah theology perhaps has to fulfill a mission in the religious reshaping of the future. And that was citing a book by that rabbi, by that Jew, which was titled with the false use of the word, Israel Elahumanidad, which is Israel, humanity. And it was published in Paris in 1914. So that rabbi had an understanding of the role that the Kabbalah would take in the secret societies in the so-called reshaping of the future, which is exactly what we've seen these last 30 years. Or maybe it was 50. Going. Who are, the book asks, who are the true leaders of Freemasonry? This is one of the secrets of the sect, which is very carefully kept. But one can assert that Freemasonry all over the world develops in agreement with one and the same plan, that its methods are always and in all parts identical, 
and that the aims pursued are permanently the same. This occasioned us to believe that a uniform middle point exists which directs all movements of the set. Further on, we will touch upon this question. However, here let us recall that Carta de Colonia, dated June 24, 1935, speaks of a director of Freemasonry, the Grand Master or Patriarch, who, although known by very few brothers, exists in reality, and Gugonot de Mousseau points out that this choice of the order these real directors, whom only a very few initiates know, exercise their function in useful and secret dependency upon the sick Israelite or Jewish Kabbalists, and that the true directors of Freemasonry are the friends, the helpers, and the vassals of the Jew to whom they do homage as their highest lords. The same judgment is shared by Eckert. Drumont, Deschamps, Bijourjoin, Lambolin, and other savants of Freemasonic and Jewish questions. And that's the end of a quote citing Roger Gugonot de Mousseau in his book, which is titled in French, The Jew, Judaism, and the Judaization of Christian Peoples, originally published in Paris in 1869. And if memory serves me correctly, Nesta Webster also cited Gugino de Masso. Let us leave the dogmatic teaching of the Freemasons and Jewry to one side, and let us examine the alliances between both from the purely practical and realistic standpoint. If one proceeds logically, one cannot avoid drawing the conclusion which is formulated by L. de Poncins in The Secret Powers Behind Revolution, and that was published in France. Nine. The manifoldness of Freemasonry, its permanence, the inalterability of its goals, the words of de Poncins, I'm sorry, in 1929. The inalterability of its goals, which are completely explicable since it is a question of a Jewish creation to serve Jewish interests, would be completely incomprehensible if its origin were of a Christian nature. Even the purpose in itself of Freemasonry, namely the destruction of Christian civilization, reveals to us the Jew, for only the Jew can draw advantage from it, and the Jew alone is inspired by a sufficiently violent hatred towards Christianity to create such an organization. So, <laughs> De Poncins understood what we in identity Christian, Christian, I'm sorry, what we in Christian identity understand to be absolutely true of the Jew, and he understood it 80 years ago. He understood it about the same time that Adolf Hitler understood it. The French writer, De Poncins, was publishing his work around the same time that Nesta Webster had published her own books on the secret societies, which we have already quoted at length, not only in our series on the Protocols of Satan here last year, but also in a series we did 
on the revolutions of Europe, which are posted at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania, which we did perhaps five years ago, maybe six years ago, I forget. They probably could use an update. Vapon Sins was drawing from many of the same sources that Webster drew. However, to Vapon's credit, he much better recognized the wizard behind the curtain, Nesta Webster, and we criticized her for it. Nesta Webster was reluctant. She spoke about the Jewish question, but she was reluctant to pin Freemasonry on the Jews. Vapon Sins and before him, Roger Guggenot de Mousseau, they knew better. Already, our book continues. In 1867, the Permanent International League for Peace came into existence, and its secretary, the Jew, Passy, outlined the ideas of a court of justice to settle all conflicts between the nations without appeal. The newspaper, and I went looking for this newspaper and found many with similar titles, but couldn't find this one. The newspaper, the Israelite Archive, again misusing that term, dreamed of a similar court of justice in the year 1864. It is not natural and necessary, wrote a certain Jew named Levi Bing that as soon as possible we see erected an additional court of justice, and in fact a highest court of justice, to whom the great open conflicts and the quarrels among the nations are submitted. I'm sorry, Bing is asking if this is not natural and necessary. It's not natural and necessary to erect such a court as soon as possible which in the last instance passes judgment and whose last word is given powerful weight. This will be the word of God, according to the Jew, which is uttered by his firstborn sons, the Hebrews, and before which the general rest of mankind will bow in respect before our brothers, our friends, and our pupils. And there we have it. Even though the revelation of Joshua Christ promises the exact opposite, and the Jews did indeed bow before Christians for a thousand years, for Christian nobles of Europe. There are other prophecies which tell us that Saul will break that yoke and rule over Jacob, time of Jacob's trouble. That's the time helped. Of course, we must detest the identification of the Jews as Israel, which comes from confusion and ignorance of the history of Judea in the two centuries before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Our book continues. These are the dreams of Israel, the Jews. As always, they accord with those of Freemasonry. The, Freemas the Freemasons' calendar writes, quotes, when the Republic has been set up in the whole of old Europe, Israel, as ruler of the Jews, will rule over this old Europe that appeared in the 
Primarer Almanac, or Freemason's Almanac, published in Leipzig in 1804. This is certainly true, as we see the European Union today, and the Jews have their own special parliament, which meets in the very same place as the generally elected European parliament. And we see that everything that the Jews announce in the media, that the Jews boast about in the media, becomes the policy of the European Union. It's not a mistake that the Jews have their own European parliament in the same place where the generally elected parliament presides. The Jews are really the ones running the show. And that's right in everybody's faces. Credible. Continuing with our source book. At the World Congress of Jewish Youth, which was held on the 4th of August, August 1928, H. Justin Godard announced that the Jews were the firmest supporters of the League of Nations, which had to thank its existence to them. The Jew Passin gives more exact information, and this is a quote from him. The rebirth of Zionism is the work of the League of Nations. Through it, the Jewish organizations place themselves as defenders of the League of Nations, and therefore Geneva swarms with representatives of the quote-unquote chosen people, those words belonging to a Jew. The most venerable Cardinal Jose Maria Caro, Archbishop of Santiago and Primate of Chile, also proves in his authoritatively supported work, The Secret of Freemasonry, another book that we looked for but could not, in a, in a swamp of search engine research, could not find, that it is the Jews who direct this sect in order to rule the world and destroy the Holy Church. In connection with its origin, he affirms, the Freemasonic Rite clearly betrays its Jewish origin. The symbols, which begin with the Bible itself, the coat of arms upon which an attempt is made to explain the different forms of the cherubim described by Ezekiel in his second poem, an ox, a man, a lion, and an eagle. The two pillars on the Freemasonic Temple in remembrance of the Temple of Solomon. The rebuilding of the temple, which is the work of the Masons. The reading matter and the handbooks, which in the greater part are taken from the Bible, they turn almost always towards Freemasonic taste, especially the legend of Hiram, which plays an important role in the Freemasonic rite. And of course, the entire legend of Hiram Abi is a contrivance. The customary words and expressions, like the names of the pillars, Boaz and Yakin, the words of knowledge and of admittance, Tubalcain, Shibboleth, Giblin, or Boahan, Nekam, or Nekam, Abibalk, etc., the importance which is allotted to numbers, a matter very original to the Kabbalah, all these are further proofs of the Kabbalistic influence on Freemasonry and on Bollinger. Finally, the facts, the rule of terror, the outbreak of satanic hatred against the church, 
the rule of terror referring to the period immediately following the French Revolution. Against our Lord Jesus Christ, the terrible blasphemies against God that the revolutionary Freemasons perpetrated in France are nothing more than the expression and the fulfillment of the Kabbalistic and secret sects which already for several centuries have fought secretly against Christianity. What the Jewish Bolshevists, remember this is written in 1992, what the Jewish Bolshevists, to the greatest part, do in Russia, <coughs> oh, excuse me, what the Jewish Bolshevists do to the greatest part in Russia against Christianity is only another addition of the deeds of the Freemasons in the French Revolution, the executioners are others. However, the doctrine that motivates and empowers them and the supreme leadership are the same. And Nesta Webster, to her credit, did indeed identify the many similar aspects and the many similar underlying philosophies between the authors of the French Revolution and the authors of the Bolshevik Revolution. We had seen in the pages of Nesta Webster that the writings of Marx and Lenin often very closely mimicked many of the things written by the leaders of the various secret societies and also found in the Protocols of Zeon. And with this we will present chapter three of book two. The Jews as the leaders of the Freemasons. The famous and learned Jesuit, Monsignor Leon Morin, Archbishop of Port Louis, and I understand that the Jesuits also have their problems, confirms in his authoritatively substantiated work, Philosoph Philosophy of Freemasonry. The following, the first degrees of Freemasonry are intended for the purpose, as we will see further below, of transforming the laymen into real men in the Freemasonic sense, and the second section, which passes from the 12th to 22nd degree, is intended to dedicate men to the Jewish pontifex, and the third section of the 23rd to 33rd degree must dedicate the pontifex to the Jewish king or Kabbalistic emperor. The first thing that surprises the new disciple of the lodge is the Jewish character of everything which he finds there. From the first to the thirtieth degree, he hears only talk of the great work of rebuilding the Temple of Solomon, of the murdering of the architect Hiram Abiff, of the two pillars, Boaz and Yakin, of a host of secret symbols or signs, and the Hebrew holy words, and of the Jewish calendar, which adds 4,000 years to our own, so as not to honor the birth of the divine Savior, a reference that Morin makes to Christ, of course. The reference to the pillars is allegedly from three kings, which is really one king, probably referring to the Septuagint. 
3 Kings chapter 7 verse 21, which in the King James Bible is 1 Kings verse 21. 1 and 2 Kings in the Vulgate and the Septuagint are 1 and 2 sand. As we saw in the letters of Johann Reuschler, his primary fascination with the Kabbalah was the mystic powers attributed to what were perceived as Hebrew symbols and words. Freemasonry seems to be, as this particular writer describes it, a direct derivative of the profession of Reuschler, but instead they bear those similarities because of their common source, the Kabbalistic Jews. However, looking at the so-called Judeo-Christian churchgoers today, and how they too are easily absorbed by most everything Jewish, they're fascinated by it, to the point of even worshipping the Jews themselves. We can imagine how so many men like Reuschland were entranced by the claims in regard to the Kabbalah and the mystic rituals derived from Jewish magic, or properly, sorcery. And perhaps they thought that these things were good. However, now that we know better, we certainly cannot excuse them. If they had read and believed their Bibles instead, they too may have known better. Continuing with this Jesuit bishop, Rian Yerin, after the Jews had set up Freemasonry in different lands, they secured themselves predominance in the Grand Orients by number and in influence. On the other hand, they set up a great number of lodges exclusively for Jews. Even before the Revolution of 1789, the brothers Ecker and Eckhoffen had founded in Hamburg the Lodge of Melchizedek, which was reserved for Jews. The Hebrews von Hirschfeld and Cotter founded towards the end of the 18th century in Berlin the Lodge of Tolerance, and of course both Hamburg and Berlin were in Protestant cities. Since that time, the Jews used the trick of bringing Jews and Christians closer to ideologically and politically control or lead astray the later. However, at the time that they had to take their refuge in the secret leagues, since the laws and customs of the Christian states of Europe revealed satisfactory measures which had the aim of protecting the Christians against cheating by the Jews. The secret Freemasons paper of Leipzig said in their October number of 1864 that the middle point of Jewish lodges in Paris was under the direction of Cremeau and the Grand Rabbi. And with that, we will move on to the doctrine, signs, and degrees of Freemasonry come from Jewry. The famous Archbishop, Bishop of Port Louis, says when he speaks of the Jewish origin of Freemasonic doctrines, the following. The doctrines of Freemasonry are those of the Jewish Kabbalah, and in particular those of their book, the Sohar, which means light. This is not recorded in any Freemasonic document for it is one of the great secrets which the Jews preserve so that they only they themselves know it. 
Nevertheless, we have been able to discover it when we follow the traces of the number 11. Here we have discovered the fundamental doctrines of the Jewish Kabbalah, which were taken up into Freemasonry. And this book is the Philosophy of Freemasonry, which was published in 1957. We will soon make a presentation here at Christogenia, probably in several weeks, criticizing Wesley Swift, especially for his citations of the so-called Zohar, which he cited often in his sermons. None of the Kabbalistic or Talmudic works should ever be accepted by identity Christians. But Wesley Swift rather consistently cited the Zohar. Two other things that we see as tragic errors, and we have to correct the mistakes of our forebears. Our book continues. In the preceding chapters, there remained always a certain number of Freemasonic signs that were more or less inapplicable. All this, which plays a role in Freemasonry and its history, allows itself to be applied with astonishing ease to the Jewish people. What exists in reality in Freemasonry is all completely, exclusively, and passionately Jewish from beginning to end. What possible interest have the other peoples, meaning the non-Jewish people, in rebuilding the Temple of Solomon? Do they do it on their own account or an account of the Jews? Have these peoples or the Jews a use therefrom? What advantages does the fact represent that one destroys the other, so that, in the end, all over the world, the princes of Jerusalem, which is the title of the 16th Freemasonry, the heads of the tabernacle, which is the title of the 23rd degree, or the princes of the tabernacle, the 24th degree, triumph. Have the peoples become united so as to serve the Jews as a footstool, wrongly applying the 109th Psalm to the Jews? Why do they hurry to set upon their head the crown and to lay the kingdom at their feet, as the Freemasons use the words Cater and Malchus? It is so evident that Freemasonry is only a tool in the hand of the Jews, which only they, in reality, lead, that one feels tempted to believe that the non-Jewish Freemasons, on the same day when their eyes are bound for the first time, lose their understanding and their power of judgment. And blindfolds are a part of the initiation ritual and under the subtitle, The Freemasonic Respect for the Jews. The most dignified Cardinal Caro says in his work, The Secret of Freemasonry. In Freemasonry, a great and quite special respect is always shown for the Jews. If there is talk of superstition, the Jewish religion is never mentioned. Upon outbreak of the French Revolution, French citizenship was urgently demanded for the Jews. 
although it was rejected on a first occasion, it was expressly urged that it be granted and it was allowed. Time for Napoleon's. The reader will recall that in those days the Catholics were persecuted to death. When the Commune ruled in Paris, and it was necessary to protect the cash of the Bank of France against plundering, no one threatened the Jewish bank. Freemasonry has regarded anti-Semitism with revulsion, and in fact so much so that an anti-Semitic brother who believed honorably in the tolerance of political opinions by Freemasonry once placed himself as a candidate for the Chamber of Deputies in France and was even elected. When the question of re-election arose, instructions were given to the lodges that war was to be waged against him. Such instructions, which one almost never hears openly in the lodges, had to be followed. In the year 1862, lodges, a Berlin Freemason who noticed the Jewish predominance in the lodges wrote in a Munich paper, quote, There exists in Germany a secret sect with Freemasonic form, which is subject to unknown leaders. The members of this association are in their great majority Israelites, referring to Jews, of course. In London, where, as one knows, the revolutionary herd are found around the Grand Master Palmerson, there exists two Jewish lodges that had never seen Christians cross their threshold. It is there that are combined all the threads of the revolutionary elements which nestle in the Christian lodges. In Rome, there is a further lodge which consists completely of Jews and where all threads as well as plots instigated in the Christian, quote-unquote, Christian lodges night, the Supreme Court of Justice, Revolution. From there outwards, the other lodges are directed as by secret leaders, so that the greater part of the Christian revolutionaries are only marionettes who are set in motion by Jews by means of secret leaders. In Leipzig exists by occasion of the fair, which a part of the high Jewish and Christian merchants of all Europe attend. A permanent secret Jewish lodge in which a Christian mason is never accepted. This opens the eyes of more than one of us. There are secret envoys who alone have admittance to the Jewish lodges of Hamburg and Frankfurt. Now remember, this is being written by a Berlin Freemason says that the situation in Leipzig opens the eyes of more than one of us because there are permanent Jewish lodges of Freemasonry. Gugenot de Masseau reports the following occurrence. The, the author of the book on Jews and the Judaization of Christians, 60s reports the following occurrence, which confirms the ensuing statements. With the breaking out again of the revolution of 1848, I had connections with a Jew, who out of vanity betrayed the secrets of the secret societies of which 
he was a member. The later instructed me, eight or ten days in the advance of all revolutions that would break out in any point of Europe. 1848 being the year of revolution in Europe. I had to thank him for the unshakable conviction that all these great movements of quote-unquote repressed peoples were instigated by a half-dozen persons who imparted their instructions to the secret societies of the whole of Europe. The ground under our feet is through and through undermined, and the Jewish people provided an entire contingent of these subterranean agitators. In the year 1870, de Camille wrote in Le Monde, the famous French paper, that he met a Freemason upon a round trip through Italy, one of his old acquaintances. To his question how things went with the order, he answered, I have finally left the lodge of my order, for I have gained the deep conviction that we were the on only the tools of the Jews who drive us to the total destruction of Christianity. As confirmation of the above, I will produce a report, which is found in Le Revue des Societes Secretes, or the Review of Secret Societies, for 1924, on pages 118 and 119. And this report is basically a report outlining the organization of Freemasonry into major groups and subgroups. And the first group, the Golden International, the International Plutocracy and High Finance. International is a word famous from Marxism. And whose head are found in America, J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, and Vanderlip, and in Europe, the firm of Rothschild and others of second rank, the Jewish banking family of the city in London. The second group, the Red International, or International Association of Social Democratic Workers. This comprises, first, the second international, that of Belgium and the Jew Vanderveld, and then the international number 21 in Vienna, headed by the Jew Adler, and then the third international, or communist international, that of Moscow, the Jews Epiphan and Radek, this hydra with three heads, which work separately for the better effect, has at its disposal the Prof Intern, the International Bureau of Professional Associations, which has its seat in Amsterdam and which dictates the Jewish word to the syndicates, the labor syndicates of Europe, that have still not been incorporated into Bolshevism. And then the third group, the Black International or Combat Organization of Jewry. The chief roles in it are played by the World Organization of Zionists in London, the Israelite World League, which was founded in Paris by the Jew Cremeau, the Jewish Order of B'nai Moshe, or Sons of Moses, and the Jewish Societies, Henelusitz, Hitak Dut, I can't pronounce the Tarbut, Karen Hesod, and a hundred more or less masked organizations, which are dispersed all over the lands of the old 
and New World, meaning Europe, and the Americas. The Blue International, or International Freemasonry. This unites all Freemasons in the world through the United Lodge of Great Britain, through the Grand Lodge of France, and through the Grand Orients of France, Belgium, Italy, Turkey, and the remaining lands. The active middle point of this association is, as readers know, the Great Alpina Lodge. And fifth, the Jewish Freemasonic Order of B'nai B'rith, which, contrary to the principles of Freemasonic lodges, accepts only Jews, and which numbers over the world more than 426 purely Jewish lodges, serves as links to all of the above enumerated internationals. The leaders of the B'nai B'rith are the Jews, Morgenthau, former ambassador of the United States in Constantinople, Brandeis, supreme judge in the United States, Mack, a Zenist, Warburg, Felix, the banker, Krauss, Elkis, Alfred Krauss, the first president, Schiff, Jacob Schiff, who is already dead at this time, who supported the movement for the emancipation of the Jews in Russia with financial contributions, and Marshall, Louis Marshall, the Zionist. We know definitely, says Nesta Webster, that the five powers to which we have referred, the Freemasonry of the Grand Orient, Theosophy, Pan-Germanism, International Finance, and Social Revolution, have a very real existence and a very definite influence on the destinies of the world. Hereby we do not proceed from assumptions, but from facts, which can be authoritatively substantiated. That's the revolution. The Jews have most of all appeared in connection with Freemasonry, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, and that is citing Cardinal Caro's book, The Secret of Freemasonry. In order to attempt to overthrow the Christian religion, and in particular the Catholic, the Jews took their refuge in a work of agitation. By that they dispatched others imperceptibly and they themselves hid behind, in order not to reveal their intentions. So greatly are they despised by all. To bring that fortress to collapse in the name of freedom, it was therefore necessary to undermine its granite foundation and to destroy the entire building of Christianity. And they set about the work of this enterprise and placed themselves at the head of this concealed world revolution by means of Freemasonry, which they had controlled. And this, just like E. Michael Jones, the Catholic perspective ignores all of the legitimate complaints about Roman Catholicism held by Logians. Martin Luther, for all of his warts, had many legitimate complaints the church. German people were being severely and economically depressed by the Catholic Church. So the Reformation, or the wars that had fostered, were inevitable because the people generally do not stay repressed in that manner forever. The emancipation of Jewry in France was the game, pursued in secret 
revolution, which invented its famed human rights, the rights of man. In, and that's certainly a In order to place the Jews upon equal rights with all Christians, for this and nothing else extends the much-praised freedom in whose name that terrible revolution was instituted. And that's actually citing Della question Judaica, or of the Jewish question in published in one. We hope that this establishes sufficiently the connections between Judaism and Masonry, especially from the early 19th century. And we think most conclusive is the evidence which both the Roman Catholic Cardinals and E. Michael Jones have presented from the writings of Albert Pike the Freemason himself. Here we shall pause our presentation from the Plot Against the Church, published under the name Maurice Pinier, and we hope to conclude this part of our presentation on the Jews in Europe as early as next week. Praise Yahweh! Listening.